Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in today's episode, I wanted to explore a topic that if you follow me on YouTube, you know that I explore a lot, and that is cemeteries. And I thought I would diverge today and give you a little bit more of a practical understanding of all the nuances of cemeteries and go into a little bit about safety and etiquette when you're exploring old cemeteries, as well as discuss the different types of cemeteries, traditions that you'll find within cemeteries, and some of the different types of markers that you will find. And I'll be referring to a very particular book that I was referred to read by a friend, and the name of the book is Understanding Cemetery Symbols, A Field Guide for Historic Graveyards, and it's written by a lady by the name of Twee Snyder, and she's out of Texas, and I would highly recommend that you visit her website. Uh, It's tuisnyder.com, and get a copy of this book from her, as well as uh, subscribe to her newsletter because she is uh, very fascinating to follow with all the information that she provides about uh, cemeteries from around the world. And she's a big explorer of cemeteries. And I have reached out to her, asked her to become a guest on my podcast here. And she said that she would, but her schedule right now has been pretty full and she has been traveling internationally. So I hope to have her on the show later this year. But that being said, I wanted to devote an episode to etiquette, safety, types of cemeteries, traditions that you'll find within the headstones themselves and the different types of markers. So come along and join me. And I will, of course, be referring to Twee Snyder's book today in the episode. But let's begin with taking a look at some cemetery safety and etiquette. If you are going to be exploring old cemeteries, and once you start doing it, I would tell you that you kind of get a bug for doing it. You become fascinated to go explore and learn and see what's out there in some of these old historic cemeteries. And they are literally outdoor museums. As uh, Dave Eddy has said on this podcast before when I've interviewed him about some history of cemeteries. But Twee Snyder gives a list of common sense safety and etiquette tips. The first one is to avoid critters and criminals. Every graveyard is different. When triapsing through historic graveyards in sparsely populated areas, such as western Texas, which is where she's from, I keep my eyes out for fire ants and rattlesnakes. However, when poking around an old churchyard in a major city... Other humans are a bigger concern than wildlife. Sadly, urban graveyards can be a haven for drug users and even criminals. And I will uh, give you some insight into that. I've explored a lot of cemeteries around southwest Michigan, and it is a common occurrence to come across animals. If you watch any of my videos online, you'll see I've encountered deer, um, all kinds of waterfowl, woodchucks, many squirrels, of course, and a lot of other animals that you'll encounter out there. I've never run into any problems with um, fire ants or anything like that, but there have been times when I've seen swarms of uh, bees and things like that, and I've avoided those areas or, or swarms of those black flies. 
So uh, just uh, keep your wits about you when you're on uh, an exploration of one of these old cemeteries. And certainly I'm very cautious when I see other people that look like they might be uh, there for nefarious purposes. And I keep my eye out and I stay close to my vehicle and jump in my vehicle um, whenever I'm not feeling safe in a place that I'm exploring. Uh, another thing is that she suggests is to take a buddy. Personally, I never visit graveyards alone, especially after dark. Many urban cemeteries are dangerous at night due to criminal activity of one sort or another. Some are dangerous during the day, especially if they have a lot of raised monuments. You might get mugged or worse. And those urban cemeteries sometimes will have a lot of these big monuments that people could hide behind so be careful when you're exploring those old places i've been through a few cemeteries down in new orleans and they're a lot like that there's almost like walking through a small city so be careful when you're out there and yes it's always advisable to take a friend especially if you are a lady exploring the cemeteries some of the other advice she has is wear sensible shoes there's a lot of uneven ground in cemeteries uh, she also mentions that monuments can be dangerous. Be careful and cautious around large monuments. That is absolutely true. If you listen to some of the episodes that I've done with Andrew Noland and Bobby Mathis, they have told a lot of stories about monuments falling over and that sort of thing. And those monuments weigh many hundreds of pounds, some of them into the thousands of pounds in their weight. So be careful. Um, you wouldn't want one of those to topple over on you. Uh, here she adds another advice. Do not walk across graves. Avoid walking across the ground directly above the coffin, especially in older cemeteries. A wooden coffin can disintegrate over time, and your weight just might be enough to cause it to cave in on itself. And that is a very interesting point of advice. And I have many times walked in cemeteries and found the ground very uneven, even between the headstones, not directly over the grave. So always be careful where you're walking and never run in a cemetery. Watch your kids. Another piece of advice. Small children should be watched very carefully. Do not let them stray off designated paths. As mentioned before, monuments can shift with the earth and they could create all sorts of dangers. Other cemetery etiquette, leave mourners alone. If you see a mourner, put away your camera and notebook and give them space. Most graveyards are large enough that you can explore a different area until other people leave. I have done that myself, especially when I'm out filming. I've gone out filming on holiday weekends, especially Memorial Day, and I avoid other people because they're out doing their thing with their loved ones at the cemeteries and I don't want to in any way interrupt what they're doing much less film them when I'm uh, filming a video so sometimes I have stopped filming altogether and just come back another day when I'm out filming uh, I'll go down the rest of her list picnics are okay it's perfectly acceptable to enjoy a sandwich and snack in a country graveyard many burial grounds are so hard to find that you may be quite hungry by the time you finally arrive that's true. Sit with caution. And yes, benches and tables at graveyards are meant to be used. However, be extremely cautious where you sit. Just like monuments shifting, ground can make tables and benches unstable. There's a lot of monuments at cemeteries that the people that are buried there paid to have a bench put next to their 
burial site. There are some really sturdy ones, and there are some ones that are a bit rickety with time. So be careful. There's a there's many examples down in Athens. There's a chair that a lady has right over her grave. There's a full curved bench by a former mayor at Oak Hill Cemetery in Battle Creek. And I have seen similar examples with benches down in Union City and all kinds of other cemeteries. So just uh, be careful and cautious if you decide to use one of them. Obey posted rules. Many graveyards have a list of rules posted by the front gate. Take a moment to read these. Please don't break the rules. And I always stop to read these cemetery rules before I go inside. Uh, keep pets leashed. Unless the cemetery allows dogs, leave yours at home. If pets are allowed, keep them on a leash, not only as a matter of respect, but also for their safety. A falling monument can crush Fido as easily as it can crush you. And that is very true. I never take my dogs to the cemetery. or I, I sometimes will take them with me and leave them in the truck and roll the window down if I'm just going to be there for a few minutes or walking around. But I never let them run around the grounds of the cemetery. It's, um, I have encountered people that do that. And I you know, obviously don't say anything to them. But I, would, I just would feel bad if my dog you know, went to the restroom on somebody's grave. That just seems to be somewhat rude. So I never allow my dogs to run free in a cemetery. I will take them along sometimes, let them hang their head out the window if I'm only going to be there for a short time and it's a cool day, that sort of thing. Um, the final thing is be tidy. Do not leave any trash whatsoever, not even banana peels or cigarette butts. And uh, that is a very good piece of advice. You never want to leave any trash in a cemetery. And they have posted rules about leaving flowers and that sort of thing. So you need to follow that if you are visiting a loved one in one of those cemeteries. But now let's venture on over to some of the types of cemeteries that are found in the United States. And Twee Snyder defines that there are roughly eight types of U.S. cemeteries that are common. There's the church cemetery, and this is a cemetery which is technically called a graveyard, and it refers to a graveyard directly beside a church as well as a cemetery that is on land owned by a church. So these are your religious uh, denominational type cemeteries. They may often be called denominational cemeteries. And there are several of them around my area. I have been to several myself filming. Uh, a good example of one is Mount Olivet Cemetery right across from Oak Hill Cemetery, and that is run and owned by the Catholic Church. There is also the Congregational Cemetery down in East Leroy. I filmed there at one time. So that's an example of a church cemetery. There's also a public cemetery. This is owned by a city, town, or county rather than be connected with a church, and they are required to be open to the public. Then there are private cemeteries, and these are owned by corporations, which usually require one to explain their affiliation with signage at the main gate. And these are more expensive to be buried in as public cemeteries and church cemeteries because they are for-profit ventures. And this type of cemetery often limits the type of monuments allowed in order to make maintenance as cheap as possible. Another type of cemetery is a military cemetery. A good example of that in this southwest Michigan area is Fort Custer National Cemetery over in Augusta. Uh, another type of cemetery is a family cemetery. As the name implies, this 
type of cemetery is family-owned. It may be simply a designated area on a family-owned land where family members and perhaps a few close friends are buried. There's also a customary cemetery. This is the latest official type of cemetery. Rather than being owned by a particular family, corporation, church, or other group, it is simply a place where a group of neighbors or some other group started burying people because it was convenient to them. Like family cemeteries, this type of cemetery was much more common in rural areas during the time of early settlers. Another type of cemetery that you might encounter is called a mass grave. This is usually after a natural disaster of such large scale or some kind of a large scale accident, and victims may be buried together in a single gravesite. Often a memorial is erected in their honor. And if you travel around the country, you will find examples of this in, in many different places. The memorial of the Twin Towers in New York might be an example of that sort of thing. Uh, also, another type of cemetery is the Lodge Cemetery. These cemeteries are owned and operated by fraternal groups or other clubs, such as the Oddfellows, Elks, or Masons. Although you may assume otherwise, these cemeteries often allow non-members to be buried there as well. The Memorial Park Cemetery in Battle Creek is managed and maintained by the city, but it's also maintained by the Kiwanis Club, for example. So there are lodge cemeteries in southwest Michigan. Now, I want to talk a little bit about traditions, and this is something that is uh, kind of important to know a little bit about and is something that I've encountered around uh, going down the research trail with finding stories that I've researched in cemeteries. And Twee Snyder's chapter on this added a lot of clarity for me. Um, and she talks about uh, naming traditions of the past when people were named. Um, our ancestors often followed a traditional naming sequence that differs from today and was based on the fact that back then, large families were the norm. These days, for instance, the firstborn is more likely to bear the name of his mother or father, but in the past, this didn't happen until the third child. Of course, just like today, there were always exceptions to the rule. And that is something that I found very fascinating because I had always wondered, sometimes I would find that the junior, like let's say the father was John and then John Jr. comes along, but he's the third child. And I always assumed that they followed the same tradition that's been used currently. And most of the times when I've encountered a junior myself, They've always been the first son. That wasn't the tradition way back when. Um, and he talks about names. She talks about names for boys. In the past, American families often followed this naming tradition for their boys. The firstborn son was named after the father's father. The second son was named after the mother's father. The third son, also known as the junior, was named after the father. Uh, the fourth son was named after the father's oldest brother. And then the fifth son was named after the mother's oldest brother and so forth with second and third oldest brothers down the list. So that was how the boys were named. The girls, the tradition for the girls followed a similar logic for little girls. The firstborn daughter was the mother's mother. The second daughter was the father's mother. The third daughter was named after the mother. And the fourth daughter was named after the mother's oldest sister. And the fifth daughter was named after the father's oldest sister. 
and so forth. So that was kind of how the naming sequence of families was. So when you're doing genealogy, that's very important to note the farther you go back because it can be confusing, and it's very easy to assume that the son that is named John and the father's name John is actually the oldest when, in fact, they are not the oldest. There's two siblings before them, and uh, and sometimes more, because if they're the third son, they may have two older sisters, so they may be the fifth or sixth sibling in line. And it gets a little confusing when you're trying to uh, research and tell a story. So I just pointed that out. That's an interesting tradition that you'll encounter in cemeteries when you're looking at family names. Another thing is you'll find that there are a lot of unnamed infants in cemeteries when you walk around. And she goes into a lot of this in a special chapter. So, But a lot of times when a child was buried, they would only um, bury it with a number on the headstone rather than um, giving it a name. And so there's some areas of the country you'll find infant number 46, for example, on a, on a headstone. Or you'll just see the word infant and no name that's because they didn't want to name the child. And a lot of times that will also happen when the mother was an unwed mother and the child died. They wouldn't put the mother's name on the child or her last name on it. They may put a first name of the child, but they didn't want to disparage that young lady. It was considered kind of a, a blight on her life if anybody else knew about it. So putting it on a headstone would certainly make it known in the community. She also goes into a lot of information about dates that you'll find on headstones, which if you're exploring cemeteries on the East Coast, this section about dates would become very important because I, I haven't encountered any of this sort of thing in Michigan. Maybe you might find it over towards Detroit, but there's a, a time period in the U.S. where they did double dating on a headstone where they would have two different birth dates and two different death dates. And it was based on the change from the calendar of Pope Julian to the Gregorian calendar. And so the old date, so when they when somebody was born under the when they were, the old calendar was in operation, the calendar changed by approximately 11 days from the earlier calendar. So you had this situation where people were born in the original calendar, the calendar was changed during their lifetime and they died on the Gregorian calendar, they would put a double set of dates to indicate the current Gregorian calendar as well as the original calendar. Confusing? Yes. In some cases, they marked the double dates, and sometimes they chose one or the other. If they used the old calendar, they would mark it with the letters OS after it, which means the old style calendar. And then, like it will say, um, it reads April 2nd, 1743, when they were born. OS, meaning you're referring to the old style calendar. And she gives some examples of how um, George Washington, for instance, changed his birth date from February 11th, 1732, based on the old style calendar, to February 22nd, 1732, to reflect the Gregorian style calendar. So there was a shift of days. It must have been about a couple of weeks that it was off or 11 days that the shift between the two calendars. So that is something that you'll find that's unique, probably more so to the East Coast if you're exploring old headstones. And I recommend if you want to learn more about it, get a copy of her book, Understanding Cemetery Symbols, a field guide for historic graveyards. And I will put a link where you can buy the book in the show note descriptions. 
because it's probably one of the more fascinating books to own if you're going to go out exploring cemeteries. It's really a must-have to have with you. The other thing that she talks about is epitaphs. Epitaphs are, are words of remembrance inscribed on a grave marker. The practice of using epitaphs dates back to ancient Greece. The word epitaph comes from the Greek epi, meaning around, and taph, meaning tomb, so around the tomb. Uh, perhaps the most well-known epitaph of all is RIP, an easy-to-remember acronym for the Latin phrase requisat in pace, which means rest in peace. In Roman days, however, sta viator, meaning pause, traveler, was more commonly used since Roman soldiers were often buried by the roadside. So that's an interesting thing that you might encounter when exploring cemeteries over in Europe. And then she goes on to talk about American epitaphs on headstones. And she says, in America, generally speaking, the older the epitaph, the grimmer it will sound and the less personal it will be. Puritans, for instance, often use the phrase memento mori on their headstones, which is Latin for remember you must die. Gravestones for colonial era Americans rarely included more than the birth and death date. For the most part, epitaphs were reserved for prestigious men and rarely bestowed on the graves of women. Gradually, epitaphs began to shift in tone from dire reminders to die to gentler sounding phrases such as, here lies the mortal remains of, and sacred to the memory of, and gone but not forgotten, and so forth. Uh, some of the most poetic, uplifting, and personal epitaphs arose from the popularity of America's garden cemeteries. And then uh, modern epitaphs nowadays are more highly personal typically to the individual. And they'll often include everything from brief phrases to poems to song lyrics and scriptures to a lengthy list of the deceased attributes and so forth. So you can find a lot on modern headstones. And some of them are quite fascinating. I mean, their taste in music and things that were important to them, their cars, their boat. I even saw a man's life story on his headstone. There's no end to it. I've seen motorcycles on headstones and horses and all sorts of things. And uh, it really uh, just depends on the family and how personal they want to make the headstone to the individual. And this is just an interesting way to look at the contrast from way back then in the Puritan days to present time in regards to epitaphs. So that's that interesting note on some of the traditions that you'll find in cemeteries. I'm going to go into symbology in another episode at a later date because that's a whole different aspect of the whole subject of exploring cemeteries. And I'll probably bring a guest back on. I've talked a little bit about symbology with some of the other guests I've had on the show, uh, Dave Eddy, Bobby Mathis, Andrew Nolan. We've all uh, discussed a little bit of symbology in those episodes. So if you want to check out those interviews, there's a lot of information from those guests as well. But let's talk a little bit about the general types of gravestone markers that you will find. And this book is referring to cemeteries all across the U.S. Um, so field stones and cairns are the simplest way to mark a burial was to leave a pile of stones on the grave. And you'll find some of these in old cemeteries. There are some in southwest Michigan that I've uh, researched about um, 
War of 1812 veterans, for example, there's one cemetery that there's a, a pile of stones that marks one of their graves. Uh, and some of them are a little bit more elaborate than others, but that's one way that they mark graves. A pile of rocks used to be the mark of a grave, and it was often called a carn. Uh, a single stone is called a field stone. Other types of markers you'll find, especially out west and south in the United States, is wood grave markers. Wood was often used for burial markers by the earliest Americans throughout the southwest in Florida. Early Spanish missionaries often used simple wood crosses to mark graves. And you'll also find this other type of uh, post and rail where it's a fence rail post with a uh, cross post on it, which is more of a, a rugged type wooden cross. There's a wooden marker that was used by a very special type of wood called Boys de Arc wood, which was very common down in Texas, and it was used as the marker for burial markers because this tree had special properties that would prevent rotting and deterioration of the wood, so it would last a long time. Uh, you don't see a lot of wooden markers anymore, but you'll often you'll find them out west usually where there's drier climates and less moisture that would cause rotting of the wood. And I've seen them out in the desert, in old ghost towns, you'll see wooden headstone markers. The other types of markers you'll find are engraved markers, and these include stone markers that have engravings on them, and they can be anything from uh, native stones to slate and sandstone. And it wasn't until the railroads became established that everybody could afford marble because that those stones usually were transported by the railroad. So you have marble and limestone and granite, which came into more use after the 1870s when railroads, for, for example, here in Michigan, were at their peak. Uh, prior to that, on the earlier graves, you will find other types of stone, and sometimes they were marked with wooden markers, which no longer exist anymore. So you're going to look for a historic cemetery uh, grave marker, and there's no marker, and it was because they were buried at a time where the material that was used to mark their grave has long since deteriorated. Unless they were wealthy and could afford to have it carried on a wagon and brought west. And, and there were some examples of that, too. I, I covered a story, or I was researching a story out at Lawler Cemetery, which I haven't done a video on yet, but there was one stone that the family took three or four years to be able to get transported from Detroit, and it came in on ox cart. Another common marker that you'll find in that were made between 1874 and 1915, and these were made by a memorial bronze company of Bridgeport, Connecticut. And they were the hollow zinc markers, often called white bronze. And I've talked about these on my podcast before with Bobby Mathis. She was the first one that helped me understand what those were because I was seeing them in, in cemeteries. And around southwest Michigan, I can just give you a quick, there's some over at Hicks Cemetery. There are a few over at Oak Hill. There's some down in Union City. You'll find them all over the place in cemeteries. And they, you know, she says that they all came from Bridgeport, Connecticut, and that may very well be, but I saw a white bronze marker up at Hicks Cemetery in Penfield that had the markings that it was distributed from Chicago. And I don't know if it was made in Chicago or not, but it had the information about the manufacturer in Chicago. So there may have been more than one company that produced these, but they tended to disappear after about 1914 because metal became 
important for World War I, so they kind of vanished in their use, and most of those companies went out of business before World War II. There may have been a few that hung on there, but uh, the, the monumental bronze companies shifted their focus during World War I from making headstone markers to manufacturing uh, products for guns and things like that. She says here in 1939, that company went out of business completely. So I don't know if they were making these types of markers after World War I, um, but most of the ones that you'll see were between 1874 and 1914, she says here. And I, I came across one over in a cemetery in Pawpaw, Michigan, that had been hit by a tree. And it had a huge dent in it, but the thing was still standing. So those things were very durable. And the definition on whatever they marked in the uh, the formation of it is still very clear. I mean, those markers are very easy to read. They, they get uh, more of a, a bluish uh, tint to them when you see them. So they look like these odd bluish-green headstones. And if you tap them, they are hollow. Um, and those are all around, uh, like I said, Southwest Michigan cemeteries. And then she talks about granite monuments. Now, cemetery monument builders began using granite in the 1860s, and it remains popular today. Unlike marble and limestone, granite weathers well, and so inscriptions remain legible as the years pass, whereas the use of limestone and marble have faded out. You'll still find marble and limestone headstones all over cemeteries, and those are typically the ones that can be harder to read because of the deterioration of the stone themselves. Uh, granite is a much harder stone, and there's a scale of mineral hardness. This is something I've known about for years because I used to reference it back in the uh, days when I was in the stained glass business. We used to do our own beveling, and part of understanding the trade of beveling glass, you had to understand Mohs scale of mineral hardness uh, so you knew where glass fell on the stone because you used harder stones in glass to polish glass. Well, on Mohs scale, granite ranks at a 7. Uh, Mohs scale is from 1 to 10. Uh, diamonds on that scale are around number 10. Um, and glass is at about number 5 or 6. So granite is very hard, and it lasts a very, very long time. And she closes out this little section on the types of stones, is that granite remains the most popular substance for creating modern cemetery monuments, but you can still come across grave markers made from other materials ranging from marbles, cement, and even PVC piping. And that is very true as well. There is a lot of uh, cast cement monuments that are made in the shape of uh, stumps and trees. There are uh, all kinds of intricately carved ones. I've never come across a PVC piping one, but I've seen pictures of them. And there are also bronze markers if you travel in Europe. And there's all kinds of different uh, markers on on graves that you'll be surprised sometimes when you come across one you've never seen. And there's probably an endless amount of material that was used over the years. So I've seen glass uh, marking uh, stones before and there were or markers that included a glass window in it um, and all kinds of different things like that so it's just so uh, people work very creative and there were different companies that came and went during those years that manufactured those types of uh, stones so that's what i wanted to cover today was just going over a little bit of cemetery etiquette and safety for those that want to go explore historic cemeteries and talk about the general types of cemeteries that you'll find in the United States, everything from the ecclesiastical-based cemeteries to the private ones to um, 
the military ones, and so forth, and then some of the traditions that you are smart to know about a little bit so that you have a better understanding of what you're looking at. Um, symbology is its own tradition into itself, and that would require almost a full episode, so I'll go into that at a later episode, probably break that down in a couple episodes, because a lot of her book is about symbology, and it is very fascinating to read about. So I would highly suggest that you get a copy of this book if you're interested in exploring old cemeteries. It is one of the best ones and the best guides that I have found, and it's very easy to read, uh, very nice, legible print, and she is not uh, loading it up with a lot of uh, verbose stuff that you don't really need. She's giving you the the concise way of explaining it so you understand the history of each of those symbols as well as uh, the different aspects of headstones and markers and cemeteries and signage and everything else that you're going to encounter when you explore old cemeteries. But that is going to do it for today's journey through history. If you enjoyed today's episode and you learned a few things, please be sure to leave a rating or review on whatever app that you are listening on and tell your friends about the podcast. It is always helpful when my listeners share my podcast with other friends. And if you see me sharing an episode of this podcast out there on social media, which I am inclined to do sometimes, then please take a minute to share it with your friends as Say, hey, you guys really ought to listen to this show uh, because it very much helps me to expand the listener base. Currently, I've got roughly a th about a thousand people that follow this podcast between Apple and Spotify uh, based on their statistical information that they provide me, which is quite an audience out there. And a couple of other things about apps that people listen to podcasts on. Uh, last year, Stitcher folded up and closed their app and a lot of listeners were listening to this podcast on Stitcher, and they either shifted over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts. I just received notification of another app that is closing up this year at the end of this month, uh, in the end of February, I believe, is Radio Public. This is a longtime app that used to carry podcasts. And they are closing and shutting down completely at, at the end of February, maybe at the end of March. I'll have to go back and check that email. But uh, they notified me because my podcast is listed on there. So I just thought I would pass that along to you in case you're listening on that app and haven't received a notice yet. You might want to switch to Apple Podcasts or Spotify um, or one of the other ones that are still out there that you prefer. There's also uh, Google Podcasts and a lot of a few other apps. There's still plenty of apps out there to listen on. But I thought I would report that news in case you haven't heard of it if you're using Radio Public. And as always, if you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. I am always happy to hear from my listeners. And if you'd like to pre-order my new book that's coming out on March 11th, Victorian Southwest Michigan True Crime, please do so. It helps me out a lot to have orders and pre-orders in. And I just placed a very large order for the books with the publisher, and they are informing me they're planning on shipping at the end of February to me. So I'm really excited about that and getting that stock in. A couple of the show dates that might be of interest to you that I'm going to be at, just going to tell you a few of the dates in March. Uh, Willard Library, I am doing my very first event for my book tour there on March 14th at 6 p.m. That's a Thursday night. 
and that's at the Willard Library in Battle Creek. The first weekend of the book's release, I will be in Kalamazoo for two days at the Kalamazoo Living History Show. Now, that is a wonderful show to go to. I would highly suggest you take some time out of that weekend on March 16th and 17th to go visit that show just for the experience. If you've never been there, it's quite wonderful. Basically, everything that is exhibited there is prior to 1894 or 1897. So all of the vendors are selling their wares that are either handmade garments and things based on the style of the 1800s and earlier and 1700s and stuff. And it's very fascinating if you're into the colonial period of stuff. You have every type of vendor in there from selling old uh, tools to clothing, all kinds of garments to books and all sorts of things. It's a very fascinating journey. And I was able to get into the show because my book is about true crime from the Victorian period, which fits in nicely with this show. So I have a table there. I'll be selling books there and come by and see me love to see you guys uh be great to uh meet you guys at my booth so certainly look for it i don't know what my booth number is yet they will not tell me that until the day i check in on friday so if i have a chance to put it out there on social media i will do so as soon as i know the booth number but it should be fairly easy to find me they usually put all the authors in the same area so just uh spend some time walk around there i would highly suggest you you block out about two hours maybe three to explore that place because it is a very large indoor show and uh, last year when i went there it was a blizzard outside so nice time of year sometimes we get a little bit of snow in march you know how that goes around here in michigan but it's a great uh, venue to be at then there's uh, another speaking engagement that i have in colon at the colon township library on tuesday march 19th so if you're down in the st joseph county area check that out and i'll be at uh, new story community books in marshall on uh, March 23rd, and I will be on Sunday morning at Sterling Books and Brew over there in Albion. And there's a whole lot of other dates on my calendar, so if you go to michaeldelaware.com and click the calendar button, you will find a lot of the dates and places that I will be at selling my book and talking about stories from my book. So I hope to see some of you out there at some of these events. I do have some all over southwest Michigan. There's some as far east as Jackson, and there are some events as far west as St. Joseph. So hope to see you at one of them. And until next time when we take another journey into yesterday and we explore even more fascinating tales and stories from southwest Michigan's past. Thank you for listening. 